So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, we're going to look at uh, this from this 30,000-foot view to give us a great picture of what I am calling the providence of God. That's what I'm calling this uh, Bible study this morning, uh, the providence of God. We see some things about the book of Esther that are worthy to note, I think. Uh, This is a a wonderful place in the Old Testament. This kind of wraps up the history books of the Old Testament. Uh, next uh, next week, we're going to jump in uh, to the next book in the Old Testament, which is the book of Job, which begins uh, some poetry and proverbs and uh, different pieces of wisdom writings in the Old Testament. So Esther is a uh, another one of the history books, gives us a story and a, a beautiful story at that. Uh, a couple of facts about the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that is named after a woman. And uh, I was telling Miss Deb this morning, uh, Miss Deb loves the Bible. She loves to read the Bible. She is always in the Bible. And um, she, I, I told her a little thing I found in the book of Esther, to which she told me, oh, I already knew that was in there. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Because if it's the two books in the Bible that are, that are named after women, Miss um, Deb loves women's ministry, and so she's uh, studied them inside and out. So I hope that um, I hope all of us know these little things I'm going to find in this book, but there's, there's a part of me that thinks, if you come to this Bible study, I want you to walk away with something you didn't know, because this has been a lot of time I've studied this. So if you happen to know the little cool things I show you, please don't tell me you already knew it, because uh, it was... Um, I came in for some encouragement this morning. I was like, Miss Deb, look at this. She's like, oh yeah, I learned that years ago, young man. I was like, okay. Um, the moral of that is Deb is much older than me. So there you go. Take that, Deb. <laughs> um, this, uh, this book of Esther is uh, uh, one of the cool things about it. So we've got Esther and Ruth are the two uh, uh, books in the Bible that are named after women. And here's something kind of cool. They contrast each other quite a bit. Now they're not in conflict with one another, but they're different. So Esther is a Jew who marries a Gentile. Ruth is a Gentile who marries a Jew. Kind of cool, right? Uh, Ruth is one that is rescued, and Esther is one that does some rescuing. Uh, it's it's kind of neat to see how the Bible gives us a, a, a complete picture. It gives us both sides. It lets us see both stories. And uh, so the book of Esther while it's, it's, there's a lot of interesting facts about it, so if you just look at the facts of the book of Esther, uh, God's name is not listed in the book of Esther at all. There's, there's no uh, uh, reference to any, any Jewish name of God. There's no uh, uh, list of this Jehovah, I'm a, a child of this, I'm a, a, the person of the. No, God's name isn't even mentioned in there. Now, there's, a, there's kind of a new, a cool, hidden secret about the book of Esther, which we'll share in just a minute. But in this book, the, uh, the Persian king is listed a lot. In fact, the Persian king is mentioned, uh, I wrote this down because this, this blew my mind, the Persian king is mentioned 192 times in this book in only 167 verses. So the Persian king, this worldly king, is, is littered all over this book, and yet the king of kings isn't even mentioned. And that kind of frustrated me a little bit until I understood, after a survey of the Scripture, um, what we see through this book. Now, a couple of things about it. The, the timeline of this book, you know, we're in the Old Testament. Sometimes we get confused on times. The timeline of the story in the book of Esther is really in between the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. 
So it's while the, the captivity is going on, it's also, um, there's, a, there's one remnant or return that went back to the promised land. The others still haven't really gone back yet. And so that captivity is still happening. This Persian king is, is uh, there's, there's four main characters in this story. The four main characters are the Persian king, which gives, uh, gives us a name in here. He's got a couple of different names he goes by. Xerxes is the one I like to go by him as because uh, it's his, his, his historical name. Uh, then you've got Esther, who the book is named after. Then you've got a man named Haman and then a man named Mordecai. Now, each of these characters play an important role in the story. You've got the Persian king who is um, just this sinful, worldly man who is ignorant of God. That's who the Persian king is. Ignorant of God, doesn't know God. You've got uh, this guy named Haman who is representative of the enemy in this story. He hates the Jews. He hates the Jewish nation, the people, and um, is, is the enemy of God. Then you've got a guy named Mordecai. Mordecai in this story is uh, portrayed as the savior of the story. And there's a really cool thing we can see about that in just a few minutes. And then there's Esther, who Esther loves the savior, but she is married to the worldly king. And so Esther is kind of this uh, uh, believer in what the savior is, who the savior is, and she's also the evangelist that is to go and, and step up and share the good news of the Savior. So uh, there's, there's a lot of pieces of this story that are really cool. Um, what we find is uh, Satan, who is uh, working through this man Haman, Satan is at work trying to exterminate all of the Jews. He's trying to get rid of the Jews. Why? Because Satan doesn't want Jesus to be born. So he is trying his best to stop the work of God. Now, I cannot wait for the day that we have a front row seat to watch Satan get cast into hell and be bound up. Because what we're going to say as believers is, we told you so. <laughs> like you, you thought you were winning. You thought you could stop the work of God. You thought you had power. You thought you were the one that's going to stop things. What we'll see through the book of Esther is, through all of the enemy's attempts, God was still at work. Even though his name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, we know that he is working. Now, there's a couple things I want to note about that. As I was doing this prayerful uh, uh, walking through of this scripture, I thought about a few things. Now, if you think about where it was in the history books, so where, where, what timeline this happened in, when God's, when the decree came from Cyrus, Cyrus, the, the, the Persian governor that sent, that said the, the, the Israelites, the people of God, should go back to the promised land, build their temple, that, that, that's the land they possess. When that happened, God's people should have all rallied around and gone home. However, the majority of them were very comfortable in this city. They were very comfortable in captivity because things were going well. There was wealth, there was money, there was riches. So they were comfortable. They didn't want to leave and go pioneering back to home. So what that tells me is that the people of God in that moment did not follow after the charge of God. So they, they were um, comfortable in the world. And we know anytime in the Old Testament so far, it seems like this Bible study has been a lot about like don't get comfortable with the world, right? Like you get comfortable with the world, stuff's not good. So it was like God's people 
refused to even acknowledge that he was telling them to do something. And when God's people refused to acknowledge him, God says, if you're not going to acknowledge me publicly, I'll just work privately. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep working. You don't stop my work. There's something cool about the book of Esther, as I said. So there is a, um, I think that you see the enemy working very publicly and trying to do a lot of work. And you see God working privately. In the book of Esther, there are four verses that specifically stand out. And each of those four verses, you don't see it in our English Bible. But if you read this in Hebrew, you will read, and Hebrew, Hebrew reads backwards, like it's all, it's all, it's all symbols, right? So uh, the name Jehovah is four letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And these four letters line up. In the book of Esther, there are four verses that if you use them as an acrostic, the first letter of each of those Hebrew words are the, first, are the, are the letters in the name Jehovah. So they spell out Jehovah. Now, so it's a code. It's coded in the Hebrew Bible. Jehovah is at work here. There's another, uh, if you read chapter 7, there's a word, there's a, a phrase in chapter 7 that gives an acrostic of the phrase, I am. So what we find in the book of Esther is, even though Jehovah's name is not all over it, Jehovah's name is all within it. Like you're not going to find God's word that doesn't have his name in it. His name is, is, is printed within the words. So there's something really cool about seeing the book of Esther that's why I told Deb this morning, she's like, oh, I knew that long time ago. I get it. I was like, okay, it's not brand new information, but it's cool and I like it. And so as you see, Jehovah is at work within the pages of this scripture, even though his name isn't being said by his people, he says, I'm still at work. And for those with ears to hear, I'm going to show you, let's, let's, let's experience this together. So, um, so that's the background. That's kind of where we're at. We're going to look at this book in three sections. Now, I really struggled with how to break this book down for a, a survey because this is the story of Esther. And my whole life, I've just, I've just story told this, right? This is, this is the story of Esther. This is the story of what God was doing, how God did it, and the way that it turned out. And so here's the story. So, there's, so I, when I broke this up into a survey, I broke it up like four different times. So there's a chance this morning, it should be... 45 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe. But there's a chance this morning it could be three hours because I've got like, I've got like four different breakdowns of this book. Um, I'm going to try to do this um, in the way that makes some sense to me. Uh, so we're going to break it down in three sections, I think. Uh, the first one I'm going to call evil formed, when evil is formed. I'm going to then call it when evil is fought. And then, uh, then the next, the last piece is when evil failed. I think that's an easy, like, preacher term way to get it. So uh, the first section, the first three chapters specifically, are when evil is being formed. Now, there's a lot more that happens in these first three chapters other than just evil uh, because there's some, there's some interesting things going on, but that's how we're going to try to look at this. So I'm going to look at the first chapter. Uh, whenever we read the first chapter, uh, when, when you read through there, there's a few things that happens. It really, it really highlights this sinful king this king that is so sinful and so prideful, so arrogant, it's the king of this uh, Persian em empire. And it, uh, his name in there um, is Ahasuerus. And his, that name, again, Xerxes is, an, is his historical name. Uh, his name that he goes by in this book a lot is Ahasuerus. And he is a, a sinful king. He throws this big party. Now, a few things going on historically. He's been defeated. Uh, he's, he's, he owns a lot of provinces. He's like leader of a lot of stuff. 
He's a powerful guy, but his army's just been defeated. Uh, he, he had some ships sink. He's lost a little bit. Um, and so what does he do? He arrogantly throws this big banquet. It's six months long. Like we're talking a party for six months. He's feeding people. He's, help, he's, he's got all this stuff, all this pride, all this arrogance, just showing off how much he owns. And then he gets really drunk in this party. And when he gets really drunk, he, um, he calls for his wife. His wife is named Queen Vashti. Vashti is a beautiful woman, according to the scripture. She's uh, beautiful. And what he was doing whenever he got in this drunken stupor, he, was, he called her out and he wanted to parade her in front of all these men. So Vashti was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. You, you've been drinking too much. Get it together. I'm not, I'm not this trophy that's going to walk around, parade around. I'm not doing it. And so in this scene, this king gives this huge banquet. She refuses uh, this, this drunken. So then what does he do? He divorces her while manipulating the law. So he, he sees himself as being above the law. He's like, I'm going to bring in these guys and we're going to talk about, hey, what does the law say? How are we going to do this? So he manipulates the law in chapter one. He divorces his wife because he says, you know, and the guys are like, listen, king, your wife talks back to you. Our wives are going to talk back to us. We don't want this, you know. And so he's like, all right, we're going to change the way we do this. So he divorces her. He puts her away. So we see already in this arrogance, in this pride, in this uh, overwhelming uh, uh, sense for worldly pleasures, he, he makes some, some sinful errors. Then we go into chapter 2. So chapter 2, so if we see the first chapter is the sinful king, the second chapter I'm going to call the second wife. Uh, this is now, the king does something that as a youth pastor, whenever I was teaching this the first time, and when I really was digging in the word, I saw this, this second chapter of the book of Esther, the king holds season one of The Bachelor. That's what he does. He holds season one of that TV show we watch, The Bachelor. He says, I want to get all these women and we're going to have a beauty contest and I'm going to pick the winner and the winner gets to be, the prize is me. That's what this king does. He, so even in, the, in, even in him picking his second wife, he does it through pride and arrogance. He's like, my queen wouldn't parade in front of me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get all of these single women that are virgins, that are, uh, you know, uh, precious and, and wonderful and lovely, and I'm going to have them all parade in front of me, and then we're going to pick the winner. And so I, I'm, I'm watching this in my head. I was like, you know, when I, when I first realized, like, The Bachelor isn't new. There's, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like, I can almost picture the king up here being like, he's got a rose. <laughs> he's waiting. He's like... Uh, who gets a rose this morning? You know, it's, oh, it's, it's definitely this. Queen Esther, she gets the rose today. I pick you. And she marries him. So we see that in chapter 2. Even in the fact of him picking uh, the, his wife, he does it with this prideful, arrogant, worldly pleasure uh, um, uh, scene. Now, we also see in chapter 2 this man, Mordecai, show up. Mordecai is a, uh, he's, re he's related to Esther. Mordecai is a cousin, older cousin. We know that Mordecai's family uh, brought Esther in. Kind of, Esther was um, orphaned. Her parents had, had, had passed. So now uh, they kind of adopted her into their family. And so she sees Mordecai already as this like uh, rescuer, right? His family, he, who he is, and she loved Mordecai. 
had so much love for him. So we see in this chapter, this second chapter, um, that Mordecai is kind of on the scene now as seen as a, a savior type. Uh, Esther is seen as this um, one who trusts this savior and loves this savior. So already in the story, now I don't, I don't like to, um, to use everything as an allegory or everything as a, we can, we can put ourselves as this person in the Bible. This is a historical, this event happened, okay? This story happened. The Jewish people were rescued because of what happened, because of how God moved. So don't think that, oh, we're all Esther in the room, and here's how we're going to do this. But we can see a picture of how we can apply this to our life today. Esther loved Mordecai. Mordecai represents a Savior. We represent Esther. We, we should love our Savior. We should love the one who rescued us. Esther saw this firsthand. She loved Mordecai. Mordecai, uh, towards the end of this chapter, discovers this plot against the king. And now Esther goes and tells the king. She's like, hey, Mordecai discovered this. Your life is rescued. Now, at this moment, the king should have said, well, Mordecai sounds like an awesome guy. This is great. Instead, the king says, okay, I've been rescued. He heard, the, he, heard, he heard the story, he heard the plot, but he didn't hear the person. He heard that he was rescued, but he didn't hear the name of the rescuer. He didn't listen to the name of the rescuer. Here is the, the, the major point in, in the, the survey that I've taken away from Esther today. The major point is, when, when the king heard the plot... He ignored the person. And what happens whenever we ignore the person that is the one that saved us? Chapter 3 happens. Chapter three, listen to chapter 3, verse number 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus pro, promoted Haman, the Agatite, the, the son of uh, Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. So, here's what just happened. The king ignored the Savior. He, he heard that he was rescued and saved. That's all he cared about. The consequences were, were clear. So he ignored who the person was that saved him. He ignored that. The next thing that happened is he promoted the enemy to the highest authority. That's the next thing that happened. The king ignored the Savior and promoted the enemy. How many times in, do, do we have to see and hear in the Scripture when we ignore the Savior, the enemy becomes very prominent in our life? Very prominent. I mean, this king promoted this guy to the second chair. He was the most, uh, most, had most authority of everybody in the kingdom. Why? Because he ignored the one who saved him. He ignored the Savior, now he promoted uh, Satan himself. Um, and Haman, we see, does a couple of things, and, and here's what the king does. He, whenever he ignored, this, this blows my, I cannot get this out of my head. When the king ignored the Savior and promoted the enemy, the king does something really stupid next. The king signed a decree to exterminate all the Jews. Why? Because the enemy had deceived him. That's what happened. When you ignore the Savior, deception is coming. And when the deception comes, you do something that doesn't align, that's really dumb. And so in this story, and what we see in chapter 3 is Haman is a guy who hated Mordecai. Hated him. 
Because you know what the enemy hates? The enemy hates the person of God. The enemy hates Jesus. Satan hates Jesus. Hates him. So he hates the person of Christ. And guess what? Haman hated the people of God. He did. He hated the person of Mordecai, so he hates the people of Mordecai. That's what Haman is. Guess what, the, guess what Satan is for us? Satan hates the person of Christ, so he hates the people of Christ. That's what Satan is to us today. And Haman has been given authority. Do you know right now the prince of this world has authority? And you know, the enemy hates the people of God. The enemy hates God. The enemy hates the people of God. This story, we see that was Haman's two traits. He hated the person of the Savior, and he hated the people of the Savior. Like, that's what he hated. And so he's gone out to do all these things, so he's manipulated to this place of authority, and he's got it, the ear of the king, and now he can possibly exterminate all the Jews. That's what we see in chapter 3. And so chapter 4, what we see happen. Uh, so I, I, I've titled chapter 3, The Stubborn Servant, because it was a, uh, the king, when the king ignored the message of the person of the Savior, then all things fell apart. Now we see in chapter 4, we experience Esther. I call this one the silent believer. Uh, here's, here's, what, um, here's what happened. So you got to think, Esther told the king, when she shared with the king about the plot that Mordecai had discovered, she said the name Mordecai. She told the king about the Savior. Okay? She told the king about the Savior. That's, that's great. We're all like, yeah, that's awesome. But then she was real quiet. She didn't share the Savior's name much anymore. She didn't go back and say, King, I don't think you heard me. Hey, King, yeah, the plot, yeah, you, your life was saved, but here's who saved your life. Here's the person you have to put this, you have to now honor and exalt. Here's the person. Instead, Esther was really quiet. She was the silent believer. A lot of us, a lot of the world, a lot of Christians that I know are, are a lot of times silent believers. We know who saves and we may have said it once, but because we didn't get the response we wanted, we're just not going to say it again. Well, I've done my part. I said it once. They just didn't hear it. You know, I heard, I heard a marketing um, expert one time say, people have to hear something seven times before they remember it. Seven times. So think about it. If you're, if you're evangelizing, okay, we'll use the world's philosophy here. If you're evangelizing, they need to hear the name of Jesus seven times before they really hear it. Like, they, they need to hear it over and over and over again. How does it, you're like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. It's not work if it's a part of who you are. They're going to know who you are by the time you say how much you talk about the one that you love. Esther loved Mordecai. Esther should have been talking about Mordecai to her husband because Mordecai had rescued her. Mordecai had rescued the king, and the king didn't even know it. And Esther's like, Mordecai rescued you. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I just, I just knew that I was rescued. She needs to tell the king more and more and more. So here in chapter 4, we see one of the, one of the beautiful places in Scripture. I love chapter 4 in Esther. Uh, but what we see is she kept, uh, she, she kept quiet about her, her, her trust and about her uh, evangelistic responsibility. She's kept quiet about it. And in chapter 4, what we see is Haman's power is growing. Haman is becoming more and more powerful. Um, Mordecai goes and challenges Esther because here's, what, here's another thing to note. The, the Savior will challenge the believer. 
The Savior always challenges the believer. The Savior says, it's time for you to step up. And we say, but I've already shared my faith once. And the Savior says, it's time to share your faith again. It's time to go back to the King. It's time to go back. It's time to stand up. It's time to do the right thing. See, the Savior doesn't force Esther to do anything. Mordecai doesn't force Esther. Mordecai is doing his best to compel Esther. That's what Mordecai is doing. You know, in Scripture, if we go back, if we go into the New Testament, we can see that what compels the believer was the love of Christ compels us to go and be a part, be ambassadors for who he is and for what he's doing. So we see in chapter 4, uh, as, as Haman's power, power is growing, uh, then Mordecai's challenge is for Esther to take that step of faith. And so what does Esther do? I never even realized this before. Esther gives Mordecai a gift. Why? To get him off her back. That's what he does. Have you ever, have you ever come to the point in your life where you feel conviction to step up and do something? And so what you say is God's calling you to go somewhere. God's calling you to do something. And you say, I'll tell you what, God, I'm doubling my offering this week. <laughs> that should get you off my back. <laughs> I'm gonna, what do I need? To, oh, you're saying I need to go on a mission trip. Well, what if I donate to that mission trip, God? Here's a gift for you. I'm going to donate to this mission trip. That's what I'll do. It's really small, really subtle, but, but that's what Esther gives this gift. And so this should be okay. You know, we, a lot of times we'll, we'll donate a large portion of something, or we will even say, I'll tell you what, God, I know you called me to go on this mission trip. Instead, what I'm going to do is next year at VBS, I'll take off a day of work, which is basically me serving you like extra you know so so that's what i'll do god and god's like i wasn't here to negotiate i'm not here to tell you hey i'll do this as long as you do this i'm telling you i'm challenging you go and share with the king go and and share with the king go and do this thing go stand up for the jewish people go and help so by the time um, that Esther 4 is over, we see an amazing uh, transformation. Esther agrees and she says, I am going to submit to what God wants me to do. And we see in this, uh, uh, in this end of chapter 4, she's a faithful woman, powerful woman who understands the concepts and the precepts of God because she tells her people, pray and fast as I go do this. You know, whenever people go on a mission trip, we bring them down front and we pray over them, right? You know why? Because they're about to go do something that required faith, that requires boldness, that requires courage. And so we want to do what Esther is saying to do. This has been going on thousands of years. It's not that we, you know, we commission people. It's like, man, New Providence had a great idea commissioning people. <laughs> we got it from this book, okay? We didn't, we didn't come up with it. It's not like in our policies manual and everybody's coming and saying, how did you guys figure this out? It's in the book. Uh, pray and fast for one another whenever they are going to do something, whenever they are stepping out in faith. I, I ask people a lot of times, I've got, I've got a crew, I've got, a, I say a crew, I've got five people in my life that are five men of God that are, pouring into me on a weekly basis, five men. It's mainly because I'm not smart enough to do my job, okay? And so I got five guys who are helping me, help, helping me understand God's Word, helping me understand my failures, my faults, the places in my life that are blind spots that I don't see. I got five men in my life. And these five men, anytime I go to, to do something of, um, of, of any type of, of faith significance, so I've got to step out in faith, I ask these five guys to pray for me, and I say, and if you can, 
fast. If not, that's okay. I'm on, I'm on a team of other guys that help other guys. And we, listen, it's a serious thing. Esther is about to go and, and to take a step of faith that could cost her her life. So she asks the people of God, pray for me and fast for me so I can go in God's power to do what God's calling me to do. So we see that in chapter 4. Uh, she's bravely asked for people to do this, uh, this bold move. Then chapter 5 comes, and chapter 5 is a... Uh, uh, and, uh, chapter 4, by the way, uh, we hear that great phrase in verse number 16. Um, she says, If I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's a great phrase for a person that is fully submitted to what the king, and the, what the, the Savior has asked her to do. So great phrase in chapter 4. That's where that one comes from. Uh, if I die, I die. Let's just go. I've got one life to live, and he's the one in charge. If I die, I die. I love it. Uh, very passionate, very bold. Chapter 5, what we see is the strong believer. So if chapter 4 primarily is the silent believer, chapter 5 we see the strong believer. This is when Esther takes her step. Uh, it's important um, to note here, by the way, I, I want to say this. I believe God's Word is laid out perfectly. I don't believe there's a flaw in it. I don't believe there is an issue. I don't think there's an issue in how it timelines out. I think it's in there perfectly. And what I've noticed is God didn't work in the prideful king's heart until he worked in the believer's heart first. Okay? So, so think about this. He worked in Esther's heart first before he was working in the king's heart. Now, in my mind, here's what, I, here's what I'm, I'm struggling with. I will pray a lot of times for my national leaders. I'll pray for the president. I've prayed for every president that's been in office since I've been able to pray. I've been praying for the authorities. I've been praying for judges and for uh, congressmen and women, for uh, statesmen. I pray for those in authority, in, in government. And here's what I realized when I read the book of Esther. I, the people were praying for Esther to go and be faithful. They, that's what they prayed for. They prayed that the believer's life would be awakened and that they would be bold. Do you know why? Because God's the one doing the work. How is God doing the work? Through his people. That's how he's doing his work. God doesn't work in the king's heart yet until he works in the believer's heart first. The worldly king, the prideful, arrogant, I'd be praying for this king. Listen, I'm like, God, wear this king out. Give him a sleepless night. And God's like, not yet. <laughs> got to work in my faithful people's heart first. I got to work in the church's heart. First. I got to work in the believer's heart first. And then when I work in the believer's heart, I'll work in the king's heart. Because now what happens is Esther prepares a meal. She prepares a banquet. In this banquet, she invites the king and Haman, the, the first, you know, she invites the enemy right to dinner. Let's go. I love it. Go, go Esther. Knock this out. This is great. Uh, invites them in. Very cool story how each step of obedience is taken in chapter 5. I encourage you to go read the book of Esther. It's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's short. I mean, just read all the way through the 10 chapters. It'll be great. Um, but she prepares this meal. And then as, she, um, uh, as, she, as they finish eating, the king is like, listen, you can have anything you want, Esther, up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And she says, I want you to come to another meal. That's what she says. She's like, I want to prepare another meal for you. I love whenever the church is full of Esthers that prepare meals for the leaders. FYI. Just if you want, if you, if you feel the spirit of Esther on you today, 
Meals are great. I, I, I made a post on Facebook yesterday about, um, you know, we, being a pastor has its perks. I got, I got corn for days, and it's awesome. And then I found out today, listen, the spirit of Esther was on somebody because I got more food showing up today. Let's go. Prepare that meal for your leaders. As Esther says, I'm going to prepare another meal. I want you to come back. Now, Haman at this point is all kinds of arrogant, all kinds of prideful. He's like, the queen gave me a meal and she's invited me back. I got all the power in the world. Nothing can stop me. So what does Haman do? He grows in power. And he's deceiving everybody he's around. He's doing all this work. And Esther says, come to the next meal. And then, then God begins to work in the heart of that arrogant king. Esther doesn't even say, you realize Esther doesn't even do, she doesn't even have to like go to the king and say, do you not remember the one who saved you? She didn't have to do that. God's doing that. So the king, the, the worldly arrogant king can't sleep at night. He's, he can't get to sleep. So he's like, I need, I need bedtime stories. That's happening in chapter 5. It's crazy. It's wild. Um, in chapter 5, we see that he is um, uh, going into this, this, this time where Haman, Haman's plots, we're, we've moved into chapter 6, from the end of 5 into 6. The king can't sleep. And so uh, it says in chapter 6, verse number 1, in fact, on that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So now, I, I want I to, to emphasize again the, the piece that I've been working through on this. Now that Esther has been obedient, the way is made for God to work in the heart of the world. Because of Esther, Esther's been obedient now. Now God has a chance, has, a, has the, the moment, it's been cleared, for God to do a miraculous work in the king's heart. So he reads the story, that there's a story read to him, about the night the king's life was saved and spared, and the name Mordecai comes up. He is the one who did this. Now the king has heard the Savior. He's heard who the Savior is. And so um, at that exact moment, this is what's so crazy. This is what I love. At that exact moment, God's timing, again, is perfect. He's, he's never late. He's never early. He's on time every time. So he hears the Savior who saved him. So the king says, I gotta honor this guy. Guess who's in the guess who shows up in the room at this moment? Haman, the enemy. He's right there, and they're like, hey, bring on bring Haman on in here. I got a question for him. And so the king says, Okay, Haman, there is somebody I want to honor, and I want to honor their socks off. I mean, I want to, I want to give them I, what Haman, what would you what would you want? if you were the guy I was going to honor, right? That's basically the question he asked. And Haman's like, oh, well, I'll tell you some things. Listen, if I were you, king, and you're going to honor somebody, here's exactly the way. I've been, king, it's so interesting you brought this up. I've been thinking about telling this to you, <laughs> right? You, you beat me to the punch. I've been considering, how would I tell the king how to greatly honor someone? You know, that's what the enemy does. So he says, here's what I would do, king. I'd give him this, I'd give him this. I would definitely do this. Let's parade him around. Let's, let's let everybody know this guy's the best. You honor this. That's, this is what we need to do. So he turns to Haman and says, and you know this story. This, this is so great. Like, this is the best thing ever. He looks right at Haman and he says, all right, Haman, all of that, everything you just said, I am issuing the call. Go get Mordecai and do that for him. And him thinking... 
wait, what? Come again? Like, are you, what? Are you serious right now? And in this moment, we see this great victory of what happens. And here's what goes on. I, I want us to see the, the, the broad picture here. If, if these people represent what's going to happen, if the Old Testament is really the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament reveals what's in the Old Testament, then we see the king as this worldly person that's away from God. We see Mordecai as this savior type, this Jesus type in the Old Testament. We see Esther as the one who believes and loves the savior. And we see Mordecai as the enemy. Then here's what's just happened. This uh, believer in Mordecai, this savior saves. The believer in the savior goes and testifies and witnesses. She walks in obedience to the Savior's compelling, right? She then prepares this meat for the... She prepares and prays and fasts for the lost people, right? For the king, the lost person. When the lost person recognizes and acknowledges the Savior, what does the lost person do? He exalts the Savior. He says, I want to pick him up and honor him above everybody else. I'm getting chills. And then it gets even crazier as you finish up this book. The next couple of chapters, we see that uh, Esther is pleased. This is a great thing. This is a great moment. Um, Whenever all of this happens, we, we see that the king will eventually take his ring and put it on Mordecai's hand. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I just got too excited right now. Because here's what he, he puts the, that ring. That ring was once worn by Haman, the enemy, and that ring, uh, uh, that ring signified authority. So what happens is the authority is taken from the enemy and given to the Savior. Let me tell you what happens in our, in our day right now. There is a day in Matthew chapter 28, what we hear is Jesus tell his disciples, authority has been taken away from the enemy and I've got it now. This is a picture of this great, incredible story. Now, I, I jumped way ahead, but here we go. Um, in the, uh, in, in, we're, in cha- we're still in chapter 6. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, he says, uh, hurry up. Go do that for Mordecai. Go and bless Mordecai. Let him know the Savior gets magnified. He gets glorified in this uh, publicly. The king uh, publicly confessed, this is the one who saved me, and I want to I honor that. Whenever the world confesses that the Savior has saved them, uh, everything changes. Because then uh, chapter number seven, Haman then has this plot. The enemy's still not done at this point. The enemy still says, I don't like this. I don't like anything about this. So he's plotting now against the king. He's plotting against all kind of stuff. Um, and, and during this season in chapter seven, uh, she exposes Esther, exposes the enemy. Uh, the enemy then is executed. He's hanged. In, uh, that on, on, listen, this is what's great too. Chapter 7, we see that Haman, the enemy, is hanged on the same gallows that, they, that he made for Mordecai. Like, he says, I'm going to make... It wasn't just the same kind. It was that set. The set of gallows that were made for the Savior ended up hanging the enemy. <laughs> this is just so... How is this story not like just how do we not talk about this every day this is so crazy and awesome the way and and then we're wondering like well god's name's not in any of this oh god's name's in all of it like it is this this is every bit of it the timing i mean literally the night that the king couldn't sleep is the night haman shows up which is the night that he gets glory that that the savior gets glorified and that the enemy ends up ultimately losing his battle this great thing happens now in chapter eight 
What we find is this is where the king took his ring off uh, in chapter number 8, verse number 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is Mordecai was then given the authority through this, the Savior's given authority after the enemy is lost. And it's after, by the way, uh, just, just again, it's laid out really good. This is laid out really great because it's after the whole gallows thing, right? Mordecai was sentenced to death. And then after this death sentence, uh, the, next, the next page in my Bible is whenever all authority is now given to the Savior. Like, this is amazing. And we get to experience this on the other side of it. We're looking back saying, this has happened. And I, I'm a believer. I am one who is, I'm a, I, I'm, I love the Savior. I love the Savior. And now, in chapter 8, we see the rescuing of the Jews, which we would see modern day as that term that we've used now the last couple of weeks in Ezra and in Nehemiah. And we see this term revival. This would be the revival of the Jewish people. They were rescued. They were saved. We get to experience and see how this revival happens. Uh, in fact, in verse number 17, uh, the, the uh, end of the chapter 8, this is what chap- verse number 17 says, And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And then listen to what it says, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You know what the world was saying? We want some of this. We want to be a part of what's just happened. The, the Jewish people have been lifted and honored and raised because this Savior showed up. Like you realize, it was, it was, one, it was one thing that Mordecai did. And because of that salvation moment... Now everyone is affected by it, and people are trusting that they're believing. They're fearing the Jews. They're like, listen, the Jewish people have some power here because their God is not like our God. Their God is winning. And in chapter 9, what we see is literally more winning. The enemy loses more and more and more and more. Anyone who was against the Jews ended up being killed, taken out. I mean, just Old Testament style. Like, this is this one's rough. And it goes through in chapter number 9, you'll see more and more winning and victory after victory because of the testimony of the Savior. The enemy's family it gets destroyed. I mean, you see Haman's sons getting killed, like awful, evil. The enemy starts losing and losing and losing and losing. Then at the end of chapter 9, what you see is this new feast is put together. Uh, this new feast that, uh, that we see in honor and, and memory. It's called the Feast of uh, uh, Purim, and that feast is is set in place. It's still celebrated today, by the way. It's still celebrated by Jewish people today. This feast is, we're going to mark when God rescued us. You know, one of the things the Jewish people did really well is, is they, they took moments to remember when something happened. This feast, so let's just, let's just look at this for what it is, for what we've talked about so far. So a Savior comes, the believer testifies, the world has changed, the enemy loses, and there's a feast to remember it all. Can I, can I just tell you that um, we, do, we do communion around here, this thing called communion. <laughs> you know, the communion is the Savior came, believers testify, the world's changed, the enemy lost, let's remember it. Let's not forget it. 
This feast signifies and says, we're going to put a stamp. We're going, to, we're going to put a seal on this. This is going to be remembered on a regular basis. And then in chapter 10, uh, just a few short verses in chapter 10, uh, as this book closes, and this book again closes the, uh, what we know as the history of the Old Testament, uh, the history books. In, 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 um, and so how, do, how, how would you close the history books of the Old Testament? How about by exalting the Savior? How about that's what you do? Because it talks about how Mordecai is exalted, second in rank. He was great among the Jews, popular with multitudes. This is, so what happened is they took the person that saved and they exalted him. That's how this, the history books of the Old Testament concludes in our Bible. And I think it's a pretty good picture for us to know that the rest of the story is there is another Savior coming that is a, a Savior of all a savior of the world. And when he comes and we transform our lives, we follow after him, the world changes and people are saved, then those people will begin to exalt. And there's a day coming where he has the name above every name and every knee will bow to his name and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He will be exalted the highest among all. I enjoy the book of Esther. Uh, I know that God is working, even if it's secretly through it all. I hope and pray today that we would take that challenge and that compelling. When Mordecai goes to Esther and is compelling her, stand up for your people, stand up for your people, stand up for your people, stand up for your people. When he's compelling her to do that, and she ultimately surrenders and says, I will do this, even if I, even if I lose my life, working this way and doing this thing, I know who I am. It's not just about a task list of what you're doing. It's about who do you belong to? Who, who is your loyalty to? Her loyalty was to the one who saves. I hope and pray our loyalty is to the one who saves. And let's be bold enough to say, I'm willing to share not just one time with my lost friend about the saving power of Jesus and his name, but multiple times until they realize I'm not, I've, got, I've got nothing else to talk about. Nothing else. Nothing else is worthy of my words except for this person that is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you today for the book of Esther. Thank you for the story of Esther. Thank you for the faithfulness of this woman of grace, this woman of God who um, through, through, the, through the days leading up to her banquet with the king, I'm sure they were stressful. God, this, this book doesn't just take place over uh, 15 days. There are years. There are years in between some of these chapters. There are, are, are seasons, and, and each of those days were, were days that um, she had to seek to honor you. Father, I, I know that there's a day coming where we'll all be in heaven, and um, the, you will make all things right. And we're going to see Queen Esther. She, she had faith in you. She trusted in you. We're going to see Mordecai. We're going to see these great people of faith that trusted you and your Messiah, Jesus, who would come. Lord, we, we get the full story. It's awesome, God, to look back and see how, how well you wrote your word. God, and, and we didn't exhaust it. This was, a, this was an overview of it. God, when we get in and start digging, we'll start to see more and more of who you are in the pages and in the words and in each, each letter and each, uh, each stroke of the pen. 
Father, today, may we be more like the believer compelled by our Savior to tell the world of who you are. May we take that much away from this great book and this great study. We give you praise for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen.